The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turning tonight to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, last night uh, we heard from a number of our uh, summer uh, short-term missions teams, so it's been two weeks since we were in the book of 1 Corinthians, but two weeks ago we were in chapter 8, and if you were with us in two weeks ago when we talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 8, you'll remember we were talking about meat sacrificed to idols, and you'll remember that the Corinthians were facing a particular issue particular uh, conflict within their midst over a couple of different scenarios. One, um, trying to understand how they should act with with meat that had originally been laid on an altar uh, to a pagan god and then taken off and sold in the meat market. Was it appropriate for a Christian to eat this meat that had just lain on a a pagan altar uh, a few days before? And then uh, also an issue of Uh, whether or not it was okay or appropriate for Christians to eat at public meals that were often held. In the analogy, you would would have a a banquet perhaps in a a large room at Oregon Dairy in a banquet facility or or, or something perhaps nicer than that. Well, the banquet facilities, the public eating rooms that you could rent out in, in the early first century were in temples. And so was it appropriate to go to a pagan temple and eat uh, a meal uh, there with your friends there in, in the pagan temple? So these, these issues were areas that, that Christians in the church at Corinth were wrestling over and, and that, that they disagreed over. And so uh, the Corinthians wrote to Paul, and if you remember two weeks ago, what Paul said was that, that several of the Corinthians were thinking well. They were, they were thinking very logically when they said, you know what? These idols are not real gods. They're false gods. They're fake. They have no existence. So it's fine for us to eat the meat that laid on their altars or to to dine in a back room that happens to be connected to a temple because these gods aren't real. And Paul says, you're right. Good thinking. The gods, the pagan gods are not real gods. They're false gods. And you don't do any damage to your soul by eating a steak that was a cow on the altar a few days ago. But, he says, the problem is is that all you're thinking about is your logic and your theology and whether or not you've got the question right. He said, you've forgotten that knowledge over whether or not this is right or wrong isn't the key part of the question for you and your Christian community. The question is, how do you love one another as fellow sons and daughters of God? And he said, you know, um, if, if what you're doing is either offensive to your brother in Christ or is encouraging your brother in Christ to go against his own conscience, to do something that he is not comfortable with, then you're encouraging a brother and sister in Christ to sin and you're splitting and dividing the church of Christ. And that's a serious issue, Paul says. But you might imagine if you're a Corinthian, you say you get Paul's letter back and he says, look, knowledge isn't the issue, love is the issue, and you need to, you need to consider your brother. And I can only imagine the Corinthians might have a little bit of pushback. 
And I could, I, could, I could see a Corinthian saying, now wait a second, Paul. Are you seriously saying that I have to give up eating dinner with my friends in the dining room over there? Or I have to give up eating meat just because Marcus over there has bad theology? I mean, you, you just said that, that my theology was okay, and, and, and so he's wrong, and, and yet you're telling me I have to do what, what he's okay with even though he's wrong. Well, Paul, that's an awfully large sacrifice to make, especially if uh, right at the end of chapter 8, Paul said, look, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again for the sake of my brother. And you can imagine one of these Corinthians saying, man, I like my meat. This is a big sacrifice. And so Paul here, he knows what he's asking. He knows he has set out something that, that uh, the Corinthians are, it's not just, okay, well, today I won't do this. It's maybe a big sacrifice. And so I think Paul, although he's given this hypothetical statement that he'd be willing to give up any meat forever, Paul wants to give a very specific, practical, real-life example to the Corinthians to say, here's what it looks like to live a life of self-sacrifice for the sake of your brother. And that's what chapter 9 is all about. So I want to give that background, but let's read chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 18 so we hear Paul's real-life example of self-sacrifice for the church. Paul writes, Am I not free, and am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord, and are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Well, does not the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I living these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. Necessity is laid on me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel." pray briefly. Father, this is your word, and we understand it in a way that gives glory to your name and shapes us more and more to your image. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
This passage of Scripture has a lot of phrases that probably have a scratching our heads. There's a lot here that's not immediately obvious. There are some passages of Scripture you read through and, oh, I know what that means. There's a lot of sentences and verses here that, that aren't immediately apparent what Paul's talking about. And in our brief time together tonight, I just quickly want to look at what is the issue at stake for Paul? What principle does Paul establish? And then what reason does Paul have for his sacrifice? So let's look at the issue at stake briefly. Paul begins with a defense of his apostleship. And he gives two reasons to the Corinthians for why they should consider him an apostle. First, he, he states, have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? And as you might know, seeing Jesus, being an eyewitness of Jesus and his ministry was, was necessary for someone to be one of the apostles. And so Paul begins his defense of his apostleship by saying, look, I am an apostle. I've seen Jesus, our Lord. And then Paul gives another uh, defense of his apostleship. He says, if you wonder whether I'm an apostle, why don't you look at your own faith? Look at yourself, Corinthians, and note that you have gone from death to life. You have become followers of Christ. He says, you believed in Jesus, you were saved, you were brought into the kingdom of God because of what I preached and on the authority of what I told you. If I hadn't come to you and you didn't believe that what I was telling you was truth from God, you wouldn't be saved. And so by the very fact that you are following Christ, you are, Paul says, the seal or the evidence, if you will, of my apostleship. See, what Paul is, what Paul is subtly doing here is Paul is saying, Corinthians, if you question my apostleship, if you question whether I really am bringing to you truth from God, then you need to question your own faith because you're believing in God based on what I have brought to you. You, your faith is a seal and an evidence of my apostleship. So Paul begins these first couple of verses with, with a defense of his apostleship. Well, what is, what's the point of that? How does he go from eating meat sacrificed to idols to defending his apostleship? Well, I think Paul, Paul begins to tell us. He says, well, if I'm an apostle, then don't I have the rights of an apostle? Shouldn't I be treated as an apostle of God? Those rights that Paul begins to spell out in verses 4 and following seem to include being provided for financially and physically. When he says, do I not have the right or do we not have the right to eat or drink, he's not, he's not questioning generally whether they are allowed to eat or drink. He's saying, do I not have the right to be provided for, to be given what I would need to eat or drink as an apostle of God? In fact, um, Paul goes on to say that as an apostle, the precedent was not only should I be provided with a place to stay and, and, and things to eat and what I need physically, but I should be able to bring my wife along and both of us should be prov provided for and supported as we preach the gospel. And he says in verse, verse 5 and 6, uh, do we not have the right to come to you with the believing white as do the other apostles, and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? See, what happens, what Paul's appealing to here is the fact that apostles, those whom God has called to preach the gospel, those whom God has called to the ministry of his word, are to be provided for by the church. And that was being done. It was done for Peter. It was done for the brothers of the Lord. It was done for the other apostles. But 
This is, this is the issue that Paul lays out here. He says, I'm an apostle, and he defends that. Apostles are supposed to be supported and provided for in their ministry. And he appeals to precedent for that. But what about Paul? What, did, what was Paul doing? What did his stay in Corinth look like? Well, we know that Paul stayed in Corinth for a number of years, but in Acts chapter 18, we also learn that Paul worked. He had a job. He was a tent maker. And Paul spent his years in Corinth not only preaching the gospel, but working throughout the day as a tent maker to provide for himself. In other words, although many of the Corinthians probably hadn't twice, thought twice about the fact, here was Paul who had the right as an apostle to be provided for financially and, and physically, working alongside them as a tent maker, not making use of that right. So Paul says if they recognize his apostleship, they need to recognize the significance of the fact that he's working, doing a job to provide for himself as as an apostle in their midst. So that's the the issue at stake here. And Paul pauses then in verses 7 to 12 to establish this principle. Paul says there's a principle at, at, at stake here, and that is that logically and biblically, a man's work should provide for him. And if a man's work is to be called by God to gospel ministry, that work should provide for him. And you see, if you read down from verses 7 through, through 12, you'll see that Paul brings up one example after another. He, he starts with the example of a soldier. Soldiers spend their lives protecting the citizens of their country. And who would expect a soldier to sort of protect their country at night and go off to work during the day so their, their wives and kids could eat? No, a soldier spends their lives protecting the citizens of the country, and the citizens of the country provide for that soldier. See what it says, no soldier serves at his own expense. Well, I'm sure someone in, in Corinth could have said, well, you know, in history there have been a couple examples of soldiers who, who pay their own way. Those couple examples stand out as exemplary instances of people risking and sacrificing for their country. It's not normal. Soldiers are paid for their work. Paul goes on. Soldiers are example number one, but you can look at other examples. Who plants a vineyard, he says, without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? A a farmer or a shepherd goes about their work expecting to be provided for by the work that they do. Paul says this is an example we can all see, but but in verse 8 he says, but it's not just me sort of uh, reasoning from a human perspective that this makes sense. The Bible says the same thing. And uh, he quotes, he goes on to quote from, from the Old Testament, the Law of Moses. He quotes, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And here's, here's the first probably of several head scratchers. How does don't muzzle an ox while it treads the grain support the fact that gospel ministers are to be supported for their work? When I first read it, I think, man, uh, is he saying we're oxen? I don't know if I like that comparison. Um, but well, what's, what's Paul doing here? What, what's he supporting? But you see what, what uh, this verse is saying. This verse is saying that God commands, God commands that we should even feed the oxen for the work that, that they do. Not viewing that as a loss, but viewing that as part of the process that we, that we go through as a farmer who, who sows in hope. We expect a reward. We expect a harvest. Since we're expecting this harvest, we, we pay, we feed the oxen who are, who are at work as part of that harvest. 
And he says, does, does God lay this principle down just because he cares about oxen? Well, certainly God cares about oxen, but he says, no, he, he particularly speaks for our sake. If God is concerned to see oxen get food for the work that they do, how much more ought men God has called to gospel ministry be supported and receive the things they need in order to do what God has called them to do? Paul gives one more example in verse 13 when he talks about the temple priests. He says, don't those employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? God gave the Levites in the Old Testament no inheritance. They didn't have a land uh, uh, that was an inheritance for them. They were provided for by the offerings that were brought to the temple. So an example after example and, and quote from the Old Testament, what Paul's doing is laying out this, this long list of logical and biblical support for this principle to say, look, Corinthians, this isn't just me saying, well, I could have made you pay for me. He was saying, this is a clear principle. The principle is a man is paid for the work that he does. And in the same way, Paul concludes in verse 14, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So what's Paul's point in all this? What's Paul's point in, in, in sort of bringing all of these examples and, and arguments together? Well, Paul's saying this. There is a clear principle. It's clear both from our experience and from God's word that a man who is called to preach the gospel should get his living by preaching the gospel, just as the church did for Peter and the brothers of Jesus and many others. So if that's the principle, Paul says, why am I out here making tents? Why am I out here working as a tent maker for these three years that he was in Corinth if God says that our preaching should provide for us? Well, this brings us to the reason for Paul's decision in verse 12. You see what Paul says in verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Here's Paul's real life example. What does it look like to sacrifice personally something that I have a right to do, biblically and theologically? What does it look like to sacrifice that for the sake of my brothers in Christ, for the sake of the progress of the gospel? Well, here, says Paul, is one key example. Sacrificing not just my right to eat something, but the right to a livelihood. Because Paul knew, apparently, that some of the Corinthians would have objected or found it a a hurdle to get over if he was being provided for or paid to preach. So rather than claim his right, Paul sacrifices his right, went to work, made tents, and preached the gospel for the advancement of God's kingdom. I think it's important for us to see the the language Paul uses here in this verse 12. Paul talks about enduring anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. This phrase, to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel, is actually a phrase that Paul pulls from military terminology. In in military language, this phrase was used to talk about what a retreating army would do to stop the advance of their enemy. They would put an obstacle in the way of the enemy. It usually involved things like digging up the road. You know, they dig up the road so that the army can't advance, or they, they leave uh, iron spikes in the roads so that the horses and the cavalry can't advance. They, an army would do whatever they could, including uh, destroying things, if that meant they could put an obstacle in the way of an enemy advancing. You see what Paul is saying here? He's saying, if we insist 
on using our rights, even though it hinders the gospel. We're effectively waging this military light campaign, willing to even put obstacles in the face of the advancing kingdom of God because we want our rights. Just realize the significance there. If we insist on our rights, we are putting obstacles. We're digging up the road to try to block. We are effectively blocking the advance of the gospel. But Paul wants to do just the opposite. He said he wants to do whatever is necessary to smooth the path for the gospel. And I think a lot of us know what this looks like. I was, I was thinking about a, a situation, and uh, I was probably much younger, probably 10 or 11, my sister and I were in a uh, sisters and I were in a campaign lobbying my parents to get a puppy. Maybe you guys have been in that similar situation. Children versus parents, puppy or no puppy. And I remember as we were going through here there were a lot of arguments against getting a puppy. There's the cost of the puppy and the care of the puppy and who's really going to go out and pick up the yard and who's you know. So there's all the arguments against a puppy and my sisters and I we wanted to make sure we could smooth the way for this puppy and And so we started making promises. We were willing to give up things in order to get this puppy. I'm pretty sure as a uh, 10-year-old that I committed to paying for all the dog food and uh, taking the dog for daily walks regardless of the weather morning and evening. We did get a puppy, and I did neither of those things. (laughs) I don't know what that says uh, in the end. But I'm thinking about what it looks like to pave the way, right? We want to smooth over any objections. I, at least theoretically was willing to sacrifice rights or time or expense. I was willing to sacrifice to make the advance of the argument that I wanted to make. Well, Paul's saying, making use of our rights is putting roadblocks in the advance of the gospel. Should we not all, if we value the kingdom of God and the gospel of our Savior, should we not all be willing to give up rights, even as I have done, in order to see the gospel advance. You know, when it, comes to, when it comes to giving up his rights, I think Paul's attitude is also instructive. You note that in Paul's willingness to see the gospel advance, he does not say, well, I really don't want to work two jobs and, and just appease a few sticks in the mud in the Corinthian church, but, you know, just deal with it, Corinthians. This is my right. But nor does he say, oh, come on, Corinthians, Get your act in order. I guess I'll work as a tent maker, but I'm not very happy about it. That's not Paul's response. What is Paul's response? Maybe this is my right, but I will do whatever I need to. Anything. Anything I need to do, I will do in order to see the gospel advance. Because nothing, nothing is as important as people hearing the gospel, knowing their Savior and their only hope in Christ, and seeing God's kingdom grow to his glory. Paul has his priorities, his motivations in order, and that allows him to gladly give up his rights for the sake of the kingdom of God. I think our hearts naturally bucket this attitude. And our culture certainly tells us that's awfully ridiculous. Give up what we want, hey, even what we have a right to for someone else's sake. Why would we do that? But of course, that's that's the difference. This is a question of goals and motivations. Is our greatest goal and motivation to have the freedom to do what I want, to get what I think will make me happy? Or is my greatest goal and motivation to see Christ glorified, people washed in his blood, and men and women redeemed to eternal hope in him? 
What's our greatest goal and motivation? In the last couple of minutes, I think it's worth just thinking about two particular applications or clarifications for this passage. First, think about the purpose of Paul's personal example. The purpose of Paul's example here is to show the Corinthians what it looks like to sacrifice a personal right, something that he would have the right to do for the sake of the people around him, for the sake of the unity of the people of Christ, for the sake of the progress of the gospel. And I think it's important to notice that Paul's comments here come in the context of community. As I was preparing this message, I was thinking, well, gee, in today's world where I can have access to the opinions of millions of people instantly, I could probably find someone who thinks just about everything I believe and do is inappropriate. I mean, I could go out on the blogosphere, and I'm sure there's someone blogging somewhere about half the things I do, why it's terrible that I'd wake up at seven in the morning, and why it's terrible that I'd eat carbs for breakfast, and why it's, you know, there's someone who thinks everything. Uh, So are we supposed to be sort of, you know, have our antenna constantly looking, is there someone anywhere, anywhere, anywhere who doesn't like what I'm doing? That's not the purpose of Paul's statement. Paul's example here, the purpose of what Paul's doing is, is so that we might live together as people in community. What does it look like for you and I to live together, walk together, work together, worship together as God's people? What might hinder us from living together, working together, worshiping together as, as one people before our Savior? Well, one of the things that might hinder that unity and that worship and that glory of God in the church are us doing things that are offensive to someone who's sitting next to me. Or us doing things that will cause the person next to me to sin before his Savior. Or, or me doing something that hinders the gospel because, because it's something that, that someone would object to who's sitting right next to me who might come to the, to the gospel, but, but they're seeing in me a witness that is offensive. See, this is about living together. Living together. And so I, I want to make sure that, that we hear this call. Not, do I have my antenna up to see if anyone somewhere in the world might disagree but does the priority of maintaining my relationships with God's people, does my, do I prioritize living together as one, as the body of Christ, without putting a fence or roadblock before that unity or before the growth of the gospel? Am I willing to even sacrifice my own rights to make the gospel attractive and to cover over offenses or encouragements to sin? This is about living together as God's people. How will I consider, you know, in some sense, it's almost easier to go out and read a blog and decide what I'd do than it is to be in dialogue with my brother right next to me and live in a way that's honoring to him. That's what Paul's calling us to do. So the first heart question to ask is, am I willing to sacrifice my rights for the sake of the unity of God's people and the progress of his gospel right here in the community that I'm a part of? The second application I want to see here is verses 12 through 18 really call us to see the priority and the reward of proclaiming the gospel. Paul here explains and, uh, and gives us, I think, a great picture of, of the reward that comes from service for the gospel. One commentator called this, uh, he, said, he said, this is the inherent spiritual reward for spiritual service. The reward that comes from sacrificing our rights in order to serve the Lord. Not everyone, of course, is called to full-time gospel ministry. 
Paul's comments here are not limited to those who are called to full-time gospel ministry. But we are all gifted with gifts, and we are all called to use the gifts we've been given for the sake of Christ and his church. If you think about the question, what has God given me? What, how has God gifted me that can benefit his church? We're all called to be ready to give whatever we have been gifted for God's people, to serve in the way that he calls and gives us opportunity. And the question I think that this passage begs of our hearts is, do we believe that there is, as this commentator said, this inherent spiritual reward for spiritual service? See, I find myself often evaluating opportunities like, well, I could go do that, but is that really likely to be successful? Or I could go do that, but I've done an awful lot this week, so shouldn't I just, you know, rest and react? Or, or I've, I've done this, and I sort of evaluate opportunities. And I wonder, well, can't I really determine when I'm going to do this or where I'm going to do this? Is the service for Christ itself really bringing in a, a reward? Or should I only act when I see sort of the low-hanging fruit that I think I can produce with the gifts that I've given? And Paul's calling here, the key question is this. How is God calling me? Where is God calling me? To use the gifts he's given me for the sake of his name and his kingdom. Whether that be in full-time gospel ministry, whether that be in the workforce, whether that be in any realm that he has given, whether it be in the church or, or in the culture or in the world, where it be, where, what has God given me? How has he gifted me? Where is he calling me? to minister in his name. Because God will reward and bless those who use the gifts he's given where he's called them to do for the glory of his kingdom. So here's Paul's example, his real-life application story that the Corinthians have seen and benefited from that shows what it looks like to sacrifice our personal desires, our personal rights, for the sake of the unity and the purity of God's people and for the sake of the progress of his kingdom. I think as we meditated in these passages in the days to come, I think we can focus on verse 12. Verse 12 is the key takeaway. What does Paul say? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And that be on our hearts and our minds this week. Let's pray. God, your gospel is our only hope And it is the only hope of every person around us. And your church is your body, which is brought together by your power for the glory of your name. Pray that you would give our hearts an eagerness and a willingness to sacrifice whatever we might need to sacrifice, whether it be time or energy, whether it be a right or an opportunity, for the sake of the gospel for the sake of your body, the church, for the sake of the progress of your kingdom. May we find our great reward in you and in the glory of your name. We pray this through Christ our Savior. Amen.